I want you to help me write this message though. Okay? You're going to have a part to play. Um, I'm going to spend some time uh, for a little while working through some of these passages and making a few points um, and thinking through it together. But then I want to turn it over to you. And I have some questions for you. See them tease there at the bottom of the outline. But I want you to, to write the second half of this message and, and talk about where you're encouraged, the, even this semester. Okay? So that's where we're going to go tonight. We're looking at this passage, Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he had come, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and the faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord, and they will stand forever. So we have this guy... In our fraternity in college named Bob Spurgeon. Bob always introduced himself to those who knew who this was, that that he was the great grandson of Charles Spurgeon. He was not. That was not true. Uh, Bob is a great guy. Bob uh, was a mentor for me and and really a spiritual um, uh, influence in my life. Even to this day, Bob's a friend. But Bob had a gift and his gift was nicknaming people on the spot. Because if you're in a fraternity, you've got to have a good nickname. Like, that's the thing. Because there can be too many Matts and Davids and Johns, so you've got to differentiate a little bit. And last names can only go so far. So Bob had the ability to just size someone up, literally the first time he would meet them, to just kind of look at them and give them a nickname. Big Mac. That was one of the guys, Big Mac. Bob named him Big Mac. And then there was Little Mac, who's Big Mac's little brother. Uh, There's Big Smooth. You see a theme. Um, Skillet. Uh, Let me think. Moose. Who else was there? Sandrock. Did I say Skillet? I'm aware that I sound like Andy Bernard right now, naming the members of Here Comes Trouble. As I look back on my college days. But that's just what it, it was. What it was. Bob would look at these people. And he would name them. Uh, and each name carried a story. Here's one of those stories. So I saw this happen one day. Bob actually graduated a couple years uh, before me. Before I even got to college. But he came back for this alumni event. And 
I saw Bob enter the room one day. We had this freshman named Matthew, and there were way too many Matthews. And so we're like, this guy needs a nickname. And so Bob comes in the room. They're like, hey, 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 Bob, Bob, would you come in here and give this guy a nickname? And so Bob walks in. He sees Matt kind of slumped down, kind of big eyed and afraid to hear the name by which he would be called the rest of his life. And we all sat so quietly as we turned to Bob and he looked at Matt for all of four seconds and said, slumpy. (laughs) To this day. No one knows his name is Matt. For the next four years in college, Slumpy was Slumpy. That was it. I, to, to this day, years later, Slumpy is an insurance agent in Birmingham, Alabama. And I, like, I don't even know his last name. He's Slumpy. He's Slumpy. Okay. Every, every name carries a story. And what I love about these names, Rigo and Rasco and Big Smooth and Bob, well, that's not a nickname. So <laughs> those four guys, for what it's worth, those are four, four particular guys I just named who I still keep up with and love. And they support Clemson RUF. These are guys who actually pray for you. Um, they have been a big impact in my life. But here's what I like about this story is that, that uh, names mean something, right? Especially nicknames. There are two nicknames in this story. I don't know if you called it. There's two nicknames in this story, and each one carries a significant meaning. Barnabas, that's a nickname. We'll get to his real name here in a second. And then the church became known as what? Christians. It's a nickname. So we're going to talk about names for a minute. We're going to talk a little bit about those things. But what I want to spend most of our time is on this Barnabas and how his nickname really became uh, his persona. And it became the influence in which the church began to grow out of even his name. Son of encouragement is what Barnabas means. Barnabas, um, we meet him initially. I'm going to actually go to two other stories even before we talk about this one in the end. But we're not going to spend a lot of time actually in this text until the end. But there's two other times we meet Barnabas in Acts up to this point. You may remember if you were with us when we talked about Ananias and Sapphire. You remember those jokers who kept money back and then they died for it? That story was in the context of Barnabas being very generous to the church. Barnabas was known for his generosity, and it's in that text that Barnabas receives his nickname. So his actual name is Joseph. This is back in Acts chapter 4, but there were too many Josephs. So the, so the Bob Spurgeon of the apostles came and said, nope, you're Barnabas, son of encouragement. And so he was Barnabas, son of encouragement. Part of his encouragement was his generosity. He sold a field. That's how we're introduced to him. He sold a field and and he gave all of the money uh, to the church to use to care for anyone who was in need. He was known for his generosity. I think Barnabas knew his role in the church and he humbly submitted himself to the needs of others. He had so much to give and he gave what he could. He sacrificed. He was liberal with his resources. He was unselfish, benevolent and generous. Barnabas kind of reminds me of the Good Samaritan in this way. You know the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan who, um, about the man who had been uh, beaten. Um, he was robbed. He was left for dead on the side of the road. And this man was broken, broke, and abandoned. And two religious men in Jesus' story come and see him. They see that he's hurt. They see that he's dying, maybe even dead, and they did nothing. Uh, they saw him, and, it, and Jesus literally tells the story in such a way that they, they moved to the other side of the road. They saw the need, but they went out of their way to avoid 
getting involved. Those were the religious men. And then we are introduced to the Samaritan. And the way Jesus tells the story, even in the context, we know that the Samaritans, that, that would have been the last person you would expect to get involved in this situation. Because most likely, the guy in Jesus' story would have been a Jew. And the Jews and the Samaritans were enemies. And so the, the fact that a Samaritan would stop and care for this person in need says a lot. But the Samaritan saw the man and he was filled with compassion. He stopped and he got involved. He sacrificed for the man. He sacrificed even his own safety, his time and his resources. And he cared for the man who was hurt, even at a cost to his own self. That reminds me a little bit of Barnabas. Uh, Did you know that the day before Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, he delivered a speech in which he talked about the Good Samaritan. This was the, the day before he was killed. The speech is entitled, I've Been to the Mountaintop. And in it, King applies Jesus' teaching to the cultural climate of the day. And he, he's asking the questions, what would it look like for once enemies to come together like they do in Jesus' passage? What would it look like for someone to sacrifice their own safety for the sake of saving others? To sacrifice reputation or even resources to get involved in someone else's needs. And he talked about the cost and he even said, and this is a quote from that speech. We've got some difficult days ahead. Isn't that amazing? And the very next day he was killed for exactly what he was talking about. He knew firsthand the sacrifice involved in being generous to people. And so he was calling Christians, even in that speech, to listen to the words of Jesus and begin to apply it even to our own cultural climate. But in the speech, as he recapped the Good Samaritan passage, he has this amazing line. And he talks about the difference in the religious people versus the Samaritan. He says, here's the main difference. This is King. I'm paraphrasing. But he says, the religious man, the religious men were asking the question, what might happen to me if I get involved? They were worried about their own safety, primarily. But the difference is the Samaritan man, according to King, was asking a different question. He asks, what's going to happen to him if I don't? Isn't that amazing? Those are two very different questions. What's going to happen to me if I get involved? What are people going to say about me? What might I have to sacrifice? But the Samaritan asked a different question. He asked, what's going to happen to him if I don't? Get involved. This was really, I think, what Barnabas is exhibiting here in the early church. He is getting involved in the lives of those in need, even at a great cost, sacrificing for their good. And we see how it influences the early church numerous times in the book of Acts. We've seen over and over again how they are sacrificing for one another, caring for those in need. This is a key mark of the Christian community, generosity, sacrificial Love. So that's one way Barnabas encouraged the early church. The second way he encouraged the early church is in his welcoming. In his welcoming. I'm thinking specifically of the way that Barnabas became an advocate for Saul after Saul was converted on the Damascus Road. Now, we didn't cover this passage. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about um, Saul's conversion. Saul, the former persecutor of the Christian church, now actually joins the Christian church. He was not initially welcomed, though, by the apostles and others, as you might expect. People did not trust this dude. He had a horrible track record. I get it. I wonder if some of us in RUF 
would not welcome someone who may be just pictured like the most outspoken critic of Christian ministries on the campus. Like someone who's loudly protesting, maybe even showing up to meetings, talking about the terrible things that Christian ministries would do on this campus. What would you do if that person came to RUF and they said, I've become a Christian? How would you respond to them? Some of you would be very skeptical. You would want to keep your distance. But some of you would stand in and you would advocate for them. That's Barnabas. He goes to the early church and he advocates for Saul. Listen to this. This is in Acts chapter 9. In verse 26 it says, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple too. But Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road. And how he spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Do you hear it? Barnabas standing in and standing up for Paul. He welcomed him. A former violent persecutor. A bully to say the least. Now welcomed by Barnabas as a brother. Barnabas was a tremendous encouragement and an example to the early church. Last week... I cried my way through, won't you be my neighbor? Um, Okay, I didn't really cry the whole time. Have you seen this documentary? This is the new documentary about Fred Rogers, the guy from behind Mr. Rogers. It's incredible. It just came out on Redbox, I think, the last couple weeks. So I, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers, and, you know, I remember all the normal stuff, the trolley, the sweaters and the socks and the puppets and the songs and all that kind of stuff. And I remember that stuff and I remember his just kind of general sweetness. But the, the documentary, as documentaries do, shows so much of what's behind the scenes, right? And shows so much of really his heart behind what he did. Fred Rogers, you may not know this, was an ordained Presbyterian minister. Do you know this? When he started Mr. Rogers, he left seminary to begin the show with the early days of PBS. And so he was a Presbyterian minister. And and the movie really kind of shows how his Christian roots really come through what he's trying to do on the air through the show. How it shaped the messages that he wanted to communicate through all those puppets and those songs. And so you see it in the way that he talks about heavy topics with kids. He deals with things like death and divorce. He talks about grief and sadness, fear and racism. This is in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. The way he welcomes kids from all different backgrounds. His show was like the most diverse thing on TV. And he would bring together very purposely white kids and black kids and Hispanic kids and Asian kids to sit and to talk about love on the air. It was amazing. He also particularly loved children with disabilities. And he would bring them on his show to show their heart and their love and their abilities to the American audience. There's this one moment I want to tell you about that really stands out. And it was a moment from the very first week that Mr. Rogers was on the air. So it's 1968. We're in the middle of the Vietnam War. 1968. Fred Rogers comes on the show with his trolley, and his trolley moves over into the neighborhood of make-believe. You remember it with all the puppets, and there's King Friday the 13th. You remember King Friday? So he's in his castle, and he's building a wall around his castle. 
with barbed wire and literally a border guard marching back and forth. And so you have King Friday the 13th and a border guard marching back and forth and they're putting up this wall and they're literally singing in Fred Rogers' puppet voice, down with the changers, we don't want anything to change. Down with the changers because we're on top. It's this amazing scene. Mr. Rogers was so gutsy to go on the air, talk to a divided nation, And to even say that walls are not the answer, the ultimate answer to our problems. Being on top only lasts for so long. And he literally talked about what it would look like to begin loving our enemies in this world. That was a radical message for 1968. And it may be even a more radical for the America of 2018. Right. And so I think it begs some questions like what does it look like for Christians to tackle difficult topics in our culture? Topics like war. Like immigration and refugees. What does it look like to love someone who is different than you? Maybe even someone who is an enemy. I know these questions involve a ton of nuance. But one thing we see so clearly in the early church and particularly through Barnabas's model of leadership is a group of believers, a group of people from extremely diverse backgrounds, enemy nations, welcoming one another as brothers. Barnabas advocating for Saul, even when everyone else was afraid of him. This is welcoming and this is risky welcoming. So that's the second thing he's known for. And the third thing is this, and that actually comes from this passage that we read tonight. The third way we see Barnabas is encouraging leadership in the church was the ways in which he was so cognizant of God at work. Here's what I mean by that. Um, In the passage we read, here's the context. Let me kind of reset up this passage because it may be a little confusing for you, even if you've been coming to RUF, because we actually have skipped chronologically the last couple of weeks. So here's what's happened in the book of Acts. This is my 25-second recap. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you're going to be my witnesses in the world. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria. That's the next kind of level. And then to the ends of the earth. So the first seven chapters are recapping the witness in Jerusalem. Okay. First seven chapters, that's the witness in Jerusalem. The church is growing mostly by Jewish converts, by the thousands. Then what happens? At the end of Acts chapter 8, Stephen is killed, the first martyr, and they begin to be scattered. From Jerusalem to where? Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus had said. The second phase of Jesus' ministry begins through the disciples as the gospel goes forward into these now Gentile regions. In chapter 9, Saul is converted. That was last week. And he's called to be an apostle to those Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, which we, dis- we discussed this weeks ago with Russ Whitfield. But that's the chapter where Cornelius is welcomed into the community and the Gentile mission really gets up and running. So now we're in 11. And what that means is we are right at the beginning of this Gentile mission. The, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. We're in phase 2 at this point in the story. And so what happens is a massive amount of Gentiles are becoming Christians, just like Jesus said would happen, right? Starts with Cornelius and then it kind of explodes from there in this passage. We see it. And so what happens is the the believers in the Jerusalem church, mostly like the apostles and the church leaders, they're kind of a little, maybe we could say suspicious 
I think that's possible to say that in this passage because it says they got word of the church growing in Antioch. And so they send someone to go kind of sniff it out, to check on the church growing in Antioch. And who do they send? Barnabas. So off goes Barnabas to see how the church is doing in this Gentile region. He's supposed to bring home a report. What does he find? Ironically, the son of encouragement finds in the Antioch church tremendous encouragement. Verse 23 says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, God was at work and Paul, no, Barnabas, I'm sorry, saw it that way. He saw that God was at work in this place. These folks from other nations becoming believers. This is key. He saw that God was at work here. The church isn't growing among the Gentiles because the early missionaries are crushing it. Three times in this passage, three times in the short verses that we read. Luke, the author, is so quick to point out the Lord was adding to their number. The Lord was blessing that work. The Lord placed his hand upon them. Barnabas came and saw the grace of God as the church was growing. He saw the diversity of the church in Antioch and he knew he knew That God was at work in this place. The encourager was encouraged by what he saw. And then I'm going to land the plane and turn this over to you here in just a second with this. All three of these traits of Barnabas come together at the end of this passage. Barnabas, the generous giver. Barnabas, the sacrificial welcomer. And Barnabas, the noticer of God's work. Because listen again to 25 through the end of this section. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember Saul? And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And then to recap what happens next, basically this prophet sees that there's going to be some sort of famine in the land. And so the disciples say, we've got to take care of the people And of the Christians in that area. So let's pull together our resources. And make sure they have what they need for when the famine comes. So remember Saul. Remember Saul? Barnabas stood up for him. Now Barnabas goes back and brings him to Antioch. To begin leading the church in that place. Get this. I just think this is amazing. Paul's profound ministry. Everyone knows the Apostle Paul. And what the Lord did through that man. But Paul's profound ministry only exists because Barnabas advocated for him. There is no Apostle Paul without an advocate named Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Do you hear that? That's amazing to me. So he goes and he brings him to Antioch and they stay for a year as kind of a training ground to prepare for the mission. Now, I can can insert all sorts of things here. Uh, I would love to say how college is a time where this can be your training ground. I think it is. I think God's brought you here so that you can grow and get to know yourself, get to know the Lord on a deeper level, grow in relationships so that you can go. This is a grow so you can go and be scattered. I could say all that, but I'm not going to say all that. I could also add for a minute, because we're not going to have time to get into this the rest of the semester, but Barnabas isn't perfect. If you keep reading Acts, Barnabas and Paul have a pretty big fight 
And I love how honest Luke is about the early church. Things are great right here, but they fight here in just a couple of chapters. And they're, they're divided. But the Bible's a perfect story, and it's not about perfect men. But it's men who are serving a perfect Savior. And so you, that's, Paul, that's, that's Barnabas standing up for Paul. But do you remember the generosity too? Think about this. His generosity to sell the field and give to the church. Did you catch the end? What did the church do? They wanted to make sure that those who were going to be in famine would have everything they need. Where do they get that from? People like Barnabas. They were following his lead. Surely God was at work through Barnabas, the encourager, and through the early church, which reflected his encouraging gifts, welcoming and noticing God at work. And let me just add this about the other nickname in the passage. You know, it's in this passage that it says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So up to this point, Christians didn't have a name. They were just some people who were following this Jesus guy. So they were disciples. Um, At one point they were called the followers of the way. But here they are labeled and dubbed with this term Christian. What does it mean? Well, literally it means uh, like Messiah people. Christ is the word for Messiah. So we can break that down even a little bit more. Really it means king people. Because Messiah means anointed one of God. And so Christians literally translated means king people. God's king's people. The people who follow Jesus. God's anointed one. Because Jesus, the one that they're following and named after, he was the one who was generous, wasn't he? Far more than Barnabas, he was generous with his resources. Sacrificing not just his time and money, but sacrificing his own life. I think even in the story of the Good Samaritan, to go back to that, Jesus tells the story in such a way that you don't see yourself as the Good Samaritan. But instead you look at that story and you see yourself as the man lying on the side of the road, waiting to be rescued, beaten down by all the sin and sorrow the world has to offer. And you're waiting for somebody to step in and rescue. Jesus is the one who is the Good Samaritan who loved an enemy, who sacrificed for their good, who gave up all of his resources so that you might be saved. That's Jesus, the generous king. And this king didn't just build walls to keep people out. Instead, he literally tore down walls to let us in. To let in even enemies. Paul goes on to write in Ephesians just a few years after this. He says, listen to this metaphor Paul gives. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that is enemies, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both. Who's he talking about? Jews and Gentiles. Different people. Different people groups. And he says, he has made us both one and he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And then he goes on to say that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. Do you hear it? The king welcomed you in. You who were once an enemy, by reconciling you through his death to a holy God, that you might be reconciled to people. He brought you near. He welcomed you, that you might welcome others. The king's people were encouragement people. 
And what began in this important trade city, this was an important, we could say a lot about Antioch. It's half a million people, um, very kind of like up and coming, huge place. They had like paved roads and fountains and tons of people from all over the world. And God began a work in that place that began to spread across the world from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, including Antioch, to the ends of the earth. In other words, God began to turn the world upside down through this church, this church that's continuing to grow. And God is still in that work. And he's still turning the world upside down, even in your story. And here's so what I want to do is turn this over to you for a minute. I just want to take a few minutes and I want you to write the rest of the message. Uh, I want you to apply this a little bit. And I want to ask some very specific questions. 